Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 17, and this week I've got a special guest who's going to talk about something happening right now. You say cicada, I say cicada, and Dr. Floyd Shockley says Cover your ears, because it's going to be loud. Remember, you can check out the show notes for links to the Cicada Sound Library, books, and recipes, as well as how to connect with Dr. Floyd Shockley. You can find the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the show's website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like my show, share it and follow us on Twitter at WildConnectPod. If you live on the eastern seaboard, you might have noticed something going on the last few weeks right here in the United States. It was a magical time, beginning around mid-May. Brood 10 was emerging, and this only happens for this group of periodical cicadas every 17 years. That means this generation that's coming out now was laid in 2004. The next generation of Brood 10 won't happen until 2038. Even though I recorded this episode a few weeks ago, they are still around making their final gasp of air before all of them die, hopeful that the next generation will survive and carry the torch of Brood 10. These periodical cicadas are unique to the eastern U.S., and in the past, colonizers mistook them for locusts, which, if you listened to last week's episode, you know are also buzzing around the globe from Pakistan to Tanzania with Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya bearing the brunt of the current swarm. There are close to 3,400 described species of cicada, and they have a long, rich, symbolic history. While some contemporary folks may resent the songs they blast en masse, Peoples of earlier times revered the song of the cicada. Even before Plato's Phaedrus and Socrates' philosophy of divine communication through the cicada, these insects featured prominently as symbols of resurrection and rebirth from the Hopi people of Arizona to ancient Chinese civilization. For the Hopi, the humpbacked flute player is the human form of the cicada and is often incorrectly attributed as Cocopelli which is derived from a robber fly, not a cicada. While other scientists may denigrate the anthropomorphic attitudes given to elements of the natural world, the deep connection indigenous people have with the environment is reflected in these symbols. And for all that the age of reason has provided us, it has stripped us of our most basic connection to each other and to the natural world. Before we get to the show, I decided to honor Brood 10 with a little haiku. Here goes. A cicada sings against the aging oak tree. Quietly, it dies. All right, let's get to it. This week's guest is Dr. Floyd Shockley, and he's the collections manager for the Department of Entomology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. I'm excited to have him, not only because he knows so much about the emergence of these cicadas, but his enthusiasm and passion for sharing his knowledge is evident. Specimens in just three departments. Um, And that actually comprises most of the Smithsonian holdings is our three departments. Um, We have about 134,000 drawers of pinned insects in the collection, over 33,000 jars of specimens that are preserved permanently in alcohol, Uh, About 23,000 slide boxes of uh, microscopic slides, as well as um, dissection mounts um, that are often critical for identification and description of new species. And uh, well over 
500,000 specimens that are actually in envelopes. Um, so they're, they're preserved dry, but they're not pinned. And that's like our dragonfly collection. Um, our, some of our butterfly collection is housed that way. So we're really large and we're actually spread out across 11 different facilities Three in the main downtown, um, you know, Washington metropolitan area. Um, and then we also have partners at eight other institutions around North America um, where they have our entire holdings of certain taxa um, and, and they help us. Those are offsite uh, curatorial partnerships. And they help us by curating the collections that they have there, uh, as well as hosting visitors, loaning material to researchers. Um, but most of our material is housed in, in the three facilities in the D.C. area, with, of course, the downtown museum being the largest portion of that. Wow. I already know I'm going to have to have you back to talk about insect biodiversity and your research on on the fungus seeking beetles, uh, because, you know, as someone who has studied vertebrate social mammals for most of their career, I am discovering and learning so much about the other worlds of things. And and so and insects and beetles in particular are really diverse. So. Yours, you've got one of the largest collections, 35 million. You're surrounded by insects, um, but that's a drop in the bucket to what's about to happen with cicadas. Um, that's true. That's right? true. And so, so first of first, let's help everyone understand what is a cicada? Um, so cicadas uh, are one family of the order Hemiptera. These are the true bugs. Now, not, not every insect is a bug. Um, bugs are a very specific order of insects. They have piercing, sucking mouth parts, uh, for one, um, and that sort of sets them apart from most other insects. And cicadas are among the largest physically. They're not the most diverse, but they're some of the largest physically of the true bugs. Um, and here in North America, they really are uh, the largest of our of our true bugs. Some of the annual cicadas uh, that we have get get really quite large. They're they're you know two to three inches long, and so for a lot of people, especially those who uh, live in cities, you know they can be they can be very striking. Uh, and even the periodical cicadas, which are twenty five to thirty five percent smaller than the annual cicadas, will be large compared to most insects, folks in in cities might be used to seeing so um, they're going to be very obvious so <laughs> cicadas are really set apart they've got sort of a sort of a broad shouldered appearance um, they've got a wide head with wide set eyes um, and again they have that piercing sucking mouth part um, that sticks down uh, and it actually runs between their front legs when they're not using it um, and so, you know, adult cicadas uh, typically use those for feeding a little bit, but most of the feeding is actually done in the nymph stage. And that's all done underground. That's one of the weird things about, about this group is we actually don't see the majority of the life cycle. We only see uh, the end when they're all coming out, trying to find mates, lay eggs and die. Um, we're seeing a very short amount of what can be a very long life cycle. Okay, so we're going to talk about that because you said something really interesting. You said there's annual cicadas and then there's periodical cicadas. So how many different species are there sort of globally and then here in North America? And, and how many are sort of how are they distributed across being annual versus sort of periodical? Okay, so well, let's let's start with the with the global numbers. Um, there's uh, between 3000 and 4000 species worldwide, which is actually small uh, for insect diversity. I mean, there are some genera of beetles that have almost that many species in it, but it's, it's, a, really, it's a really decent number. Um, within North America, it's uh, right at 200 species, and almost all of those are, are considered annual cicadas. Um, so only seven species of periodical cicadas uh, exist, and those are split into uh, three species that are 17-year cycle synchronized and 
four species that are 13 year cycle synchronized. And then it's just those seven. And then all of the rest, 192 or 193, uh, are considered annual cicadas. But before we move on, I just want to kind of mention they're called annual cicadas, but they're not truly annual cicadas. They do not complete their life cycle in one year. Um, they, Depending on the species, um, annual cicadas take anywhere from two years to five years to complete their life cycle. Uh, but the difference is, is they are not synchronized like periodical cicadas. So you don't get a mass emergence. So some come out every year, right? Yeah. Um, across the distribution of whatever species you're talking about. So you see them every year, but you are not seeing them complete their whole life cycle within that one year. And that's really important to, for people to kind of realize, um, because that's one of the things that separates the annuals from the periodicals is the synchronized life cycle, right? It's not just that they're underground for 17 years in the periodicals case, it's that they are also synchronized to all come out all at once. And that doesn't happen in the annual cicadas. I appreciate that distinction because, you know, as I was researching for, for our, our, our talk, I was like, well, I remember seeing cicadas last year and which one did I see? And it, well, obviously it wasn't these, you know, that are emerging this year. Uh, but I've always found it a bit mysterious because I knew that they may not, uh, like groups of them or, piles of them or trillions of them may not come out every year. So I didn't know that there was this, uh, you know, real distinction and that the synchronicity is what sets them apart. So I really appreciate that. Um, you mentioned the, the life cycle of cicadas. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, right? Like, because for the for the periodical ones, the ones that we're seeing now, these ones are on the 17 year, Right. That's correct. Yeah. So the so the big emergence that's happening across a really large portion of the eastern U.S. Uh, is brood ten. It's called brood ten, not brood X. A lot of a lot of people in the media keep mispronouncing it, and it's it looks. You know, I guess it's because you know cicadas seem mysterious and alien, and you know the periodical cicada songs kind of sound like a, a UFO landing. So I I can sort of get it, but it's actually. All of the broods uh, that exist are, are uh, numbered using Roman numerals. So it just so happens that when they got to brood 10, it looks like brood X. So people have been mispronouncing it, but it's really brood 10. Okay. Um, and, and so, yes, these guys are set to a 17-year cycle. And this particular brood includes um, one representative of all three of the species groups that exist uh, within the periodical cicadas. So okay. um, the three species are Magis cicada septum decim, Magis cicada cassinii, and Magis cicada septum decula. And Is all it? three will be out at the same time, uh, and all three will be trying to find you know mates of their particular species. So okay. it may sound like an overwhelming large cacophony or, or, you know, it's actually called a chorus when they all get together and they start singing simultaneously. Yeah. Um, but there's actually three different species singing simultaneously and the females can tell, can tell the males from her species apart from the others. So, um, we can't, it all just sounds like noise, but they can tell the difference. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about, you know, the males and all the effort they put in to, uh, attracting, uh, attracting the ladies. Um, but I'm just one thing I'm wondering since it's called brood 10 and not brood X, um, is that because scientists have been tracking for about 170 years and they're named by their emergence or why 10? Well, so it, so the 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 numbering system actually is is more of a recent thing. It came around uh, in uh, 1898 um, was when the brood numbers were first established by uh, an entomologist named Marlot. There were pre there were pre uh, existing naming schemes. Um, different entomologists, including some of the more famous uh, like C.B. Riley, um, who's a really well-known entomologist, uh, and others had come up with their own naming schemes. And so um, one of the sort of reasons for Marlott uh, to develop the system was to do away with all that so that everybody was using the same numbering scheme because 
they already knew that they had a limited number of species. They were tracking the same species set to different cycles. And so by giving by giving them Roman numerals, it simplified how we refer to them. So everybody was referring to the same brood with the same number. Um, and that wasn't the case prior to his publishing of his of his work. There were about seven different existing things. So the first uh, recorded emergence of brood 10 actually goes back a lot further than that. Tracks back to 1715 um, was the first recording of the emergence of brood 10. Um, but the first recording of any periodical cicada brood actually goes back even further than that to 1633 in the Plymouth colony. Uh, about a year or two after the establishment of the colony, one of the periodical cicada broods in, in the area emerged. And of course, you know, they thought it was a biblical plague, you know, attacking them. And, you know, the, the Native Americans in the area had had experienced them for, you know, many, many generations. You know, and of course, you know, because the mass emergence has all types of of. Uh, impacts depending on who you are if you're not a scientist it can seem very plague-like but of course you know they're they're relatively benign um as as far as large emergence events go cicadas are just about the best one you can have uh, right. because they're they're almost completely harmless they can't bite they can't sting um the males can't do anything and the only thing females can do is cause small amounts of damage to really young trees like saplings less than a year old um because of their overposition behavior but otherwise they're they're great so right. you know we have a long history of recording them and once we sort of established that we've got a brood uh it's been tracked pretty much ever since so okay. um, we have a lot of information about brood 10, because, you know, we've been tracking it basically since the early 1700s. Wow, that that's incredible. And it speaks to the power of this sort of continuity of science um, and, and how we learn so much by long term data. Right. You know, however, it's collected. And that's not always possible. You mentioned um, well, that's actually yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why, you know, we lean really heavily uh, on museum collections to help us because, you know, if you happen to be a researcher working on periodical cicadas, you may get to experience two, possibly three emergences, you know, in your career of, of any particular brood. And so you can gather all of your research and you can kind of do, you know, distributional mapping and stuff. But Ultimately, if there are things happening to the brood, you're not going to be the one to discover it. The next generation is going to be the one to take your data and, and continue moving it forward. And that's been the way it's been. Um, yeah. You know, since those early times here in America, naturalists were recording this stuff and, and passing it you know, forward into the future. So. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I think a, a separate issue, just a little tangent is a lot of museums have experienced reduced funding. And I think that it's, it's so important for, you know, people to know how important how critical these collections and the information that is contained in the museums is to uh, even making new discoveries. It's not Absolutely. just always looking backwards. It's, it's finding out really new things that can change or upend some of our, our, our ideas about things. Uh, you mentioned overposition, and I just want to let everybody know that and, and make sure I'm correct. That's where the females are laying their eggs. Um, That's right. So so when the female cicada, um, this is still a ways out, by the way. This is the, like the last thing that happens okay. in the emergence um, after the females have found a male and they've mated and her eggs have developed. Um, she has a really powerful ovipositor. It's kind of saw-like. It's got a blade on it. She'll use that to cut a half inch uh, to three quarter inch long groove into the surface of small uh, limbs. Um, usually she's looking for stuff a quarter of an inch to three eighths of an inch in diameter at the most. And she'll cut a groove and then she will lay her eggs inside that groove. And that groove provides some physical protection to the eggs because the eggs won't actually hatch for six to eight weeks. So they're just sitting there 
more or less exposed if she puts it on the surface. So by putting it in that groove, it kind of protects them a little bit. And it also exposes some of the tree fluids so that when the nymphs do hatch, they can take a quick meal before they have to make their way to the ground. And often they'll just drop to the ground. They're very light because they're very small. Uh, and they'll begin the process of digging in where they'll live underground for two to 17 years, depending on right on what species. Okay. So these nymphs, I mean, they're basically, uh, yeah, what do they use to get into the, do they have special structures that help them burrow into the, to the ground? And then what do they, do they just go to sleep? Do they? No, they're actually alive and active the entire time. These guys aren't, uh, they're not going into any kind of long-term hibernation or senescence. Um, you know, basically they're not shutting down. They are active. They're moving around in some cases. Uh, cicada nymphs have really powerful digging legs. Uh, the front legs are really enlarged. Um, and that is for, for digging. Right. And so, um, that changes when they become an adult, they take that, they take sort of that, all that muscle and they move it into the thorax to power the wings so that they can fly. Right. But as nymphs, they're not flying. So they put it all into those front legs and they're digging, digging down. Um, as the as the first instar nymphs, they don't go terribly deep um, because they're really so small and their mouth parts are so delicate that they can't they're not big enough yet to tap into tree roots, which is what they'll spend most of their life feeding on. Um, so they'll start off on grasses, really tender grass roots, and then they'll move up to slightly larger plants. And so they've got to move underground. So they're digging these tunnels. Uh, and then uh, by the time they reach their second instar uh, stage, they're they're big enough to try start making their way to their final host. Uh, and they'll find a tree root and they'll tap in and then they'll basically feed on that same that same tree root for the rest of their life cycle until they're ready to emerge uh, and molt into the adult. And, and OK. And so then th then all that when they when they go into do they molt before they come out? Yeah, they'll molt several times underground. Um, okay. So there's there's uh, multiple stages underground. Um, some of them are actually really critical. The second the second instar is critical in the periodical cicadas um, because that's sort of what sets them. There's a physiological change uh, that delays their life cycle and creates that long 17 year underground. Thing. And that happens uh, in the second instar nymph. Um, but then they'll go through uh, a few more molts underground um, until they're finally in the last instar molt. And that's the big one. That's the one that people will be seeing. Actually, we're already seeing them emerging uh, now. Um, and they're they're slightly smaller than the than the than the adult will be. OK. OK. And, and so let's talk about. Uh, the males and all of the singing that they do, uh, the choruses. Uh, so, so it's going to get pretty noisy out there. It is. So, um, so like I said, some, some have already emerged. These are early. It happens all the time. Um, you get, you get a whole bunch that start to come up early. We haven't actually gotten to the wave yet. Uh, okay. It'll be very obvious when the wave happens because it'll suddenly go from a few hundred to thousands or millions Okay. In your backyard. So that we'll know when that happens and that hasn't happened yet. So, the, so they come up and the males uh, tend to be slightly ahead. Um, the, they'll all molt, but they don't actually start singing for about a week after they've turned into the adult, they go up and they hang out in the tree, in the trees. Um, and they wait for uh, anywhere from three days to a week. Uh, and then they'll start to sing and then they'll sing for a week or or so, and then you'll start to see lecking. And uh, for your viewer or listeners that may not know what lecking is, lecking is basically when you get large aggregations of the same sex, uh, all sort of forming together uh, and trying to attract members of the opposite sex. And so that's when you'll see what's known as the choruses form. And that's when um, really large numbers of males of the same species will all start congregating together and they will synchronize their songs to amplify their sound. Um, right. So 
And that will be when it's really uncomfortable. It'll be sort of uncomfortable while they're just singing, just because, you know, you won't be able to get away from it. But when these aggregations form, when these lecks form, um, the sound can be really uh, um, off-putting, almost painful, uh, depending on how sensitive your hearing is. You know, they'll reach or exceed 90 decibels. Um, so it'll sound like a really loud lawnmower or a jackhammer um, in some really dense areas. It's almost uh, been likened to a loud rock concert or a, or a, you know, a jet engine firing up. So it'll be loud. Um, you'll have to you'll have to have the headphones on um, if you've got to be outside working in some of the areas where the numbers are really high. Well, and hopefully people, you know, will since it won't go on forever. Right. Hopefully people can understand, like, look, it's just the, the, the guys. They're, they're trying to get the girls. It's like ladies night. Lecking is like ladies night at a club where, you know, uh, the males go somewhere where they think they're going to find females. And then they do something, they display, they, they say, depending on the species. So these guys sing. And I want to circle back to something you said earlier, which is that there's going to be three different species coming out and that their songs are actually slightly different um, to, so that the females know to hook up with the right kind of male. Do all the males of one species aggregate together and sing, or do all three? Will they mix in a lek? And uh, typically, and no. Yeah, you end up with concentrations of the same species. I mean, you might have a few um, males that end up in that, but when the song begins, they'll realize they're in the wrong one, and they'll they'll move they'll move away from it because they're looking for the the female of their sex, sure. and she's not going to come to that song. Um, right. And it's not just the cicadas that can tell them apart. Actually, the song is different enough that you listening, if you if you listen to the three songs, they're they're very different from one another. And you can actually tell them apart if you if you sort of get yourself used to which which what 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 the three songs are, you can tell them apart. That's actually for many people, that's the easiest way to tell what species you have is to listen to the song coming from the from the from the chorus rather than trying to catch one and identify it morphologically. Now you can tell them apart like looking at them there are features that will help you separate the three species but the song is is the easiest and you don't have to catch the you don't have to touch the cicada <laughs> to tell which species you have. So so I'm wondering uh, because I could post it in the show notes are there are there recordings that um, people can listen to uh, that can then help them because we're going to talk at the end a little bit about citizen science and this cicada safari map uh, mm -hmm. tool that people can get involved uh, but is there a way uh, I know, you know, like the Cornell Ornithology has a library of all bird songs. Is there a library of insect songs? There are several actual ni nice libraries that include um, the songs of all of the periodical cicadas, not just the not just the three that are coming out in Brood 10. Um, and it also includes um, not just the mating call, but you can also hear distress calls sound slightly different. Um, so, you know, if a cicada is in trouble or if you pick one up, it's going to stop singing its mating song and it's going to make a, a very different sound. And it's trying to startle you. It's perceiving you as a predator and it wants you to let it go. And so you can actually sample uh, all of the sounds, you know, through several of those of those um, websites that have recordings online. Yeah, they're, they're right. readily available. If you if you Google the three names, the three species names that I said earlier yeah. and song. Um, there's multiple websites that you'll hit that will let you listen. That's great. I'm going to make sure that's in the show notes. And and before I, I sort of. Um... And, and, and just to be clear, you, if you if you do uh, like physical recording, you can tell. So if you look at audiographs mm -hmm. of the song, they look very different, um, you know, and they and they'll look very different than and sound very different than our annual cicadas, which people are used to hearing more of the sort of a wee you wee you sound that annual cicadas make periodicals make a totally different sound. So you can tell them apart. Um, they're not overlapping in terms of time. Annual cicadas don't come out until later uh, in the summer, but for that's probably the song that people are most familiar with because they didn't have to wait 
17 years to hear it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think like where I was 17 years ago. And, and if I, I, I don't think I've ever been in a place that had this happen. Um, and I don't oh, wow. I, this is actually, this is uh, my ninth experience, my ninth brood. Wow. Um, yeah. So I've experienced nine of them over the course of my career. Um, but, and this is my second time with brood 10, although my first time I was in the, in that Southern, uh, population that's down around, around the Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee border. Mm -hmm. Um, that's where I was for my PhD in 2004 when they, okay when they, when they were out. Um, but this is the one here in the DC area is the densest concentration. It's the biggest cluster. Uh, so I'm super excited to sort of see what it's like at ground zero for, <laughs> for brood 10. Yeah. Uh, to the much smaller populations that we saw in 2004 in Georgia. So that's, yeah, that's incredible. So I was in New York, uh, in 2004, but at this time of year, I was in Flagstaff, Arizona uh, studying, uh, prairie dogs. So I don't think I've ever, uh, there was one time in, in North Carolina, I was there from 2009 to 2016, where I feel like I saw there was something similar, but it wasn't like they were falling from the sky. Um, well, you know, that's another thing that it would be good to sort of point out is, you know, the broods are very predictable. We know when the big emergence is going to happen for each of the 15 existing broods, but there are what are known as stragglers that are out uh, almost every year. Um, these are often, it's kind of strange. So periodical cicadas sort of focus in on prime numbers, right? So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of speculation as to why prime numbers. Um, we're not exactly, you know, positive. I mean, it's obviously, there's a genetic component to it. Um, it's programmed genetically into each of the species you know, based on are they 17 or 13, but you get stragglers every year. So every single year, there are some periodical cicadas out somewhere. Now, they may be one year ahead or behind the main brood emergence, or they can be four years, uh, you know, ahead or behind. And of course, one plus one, four minus one is three, which is a prime number, right? So Correct. And they don't really do anything in between. It's either one to four years before, one to four years behind, or right on time at 13 and 17. Um, and it, it's just such a strange thing. And we actually think that probably uh, that's how we ended up with with 13 and 17. Right. They're separated by the same number. Right. For yeah. you get enough of them out um, at, you know, enough to mate and, and establish a, a, a large population. And suddenly you could have a different brood set to a different cycle than the main brood. And yeah. so we think that's probably how a lot of the broods that we currently know came into existence, probably uh, very, very early on, right after the last glaciation event here in North America, which of course would have impacted uh, especially the 17 year cicadas, which are distributed more northernly mm -hmm. versus 13 years, which tend to be more Southern. Okay. Um, 17 years would have been really impacted by glaciation events, right? They would have had to sort of uh, make their, make their, uh, populations, uh, persist through glacial refuge areas, mm -hmm. small patches where the, where the glacier didn't actually hit. And mm -hmm. so a lot of the really strange sort of relictual distributions we see now are because of those glaciation events. And some of them are really quite strange. Yeah. Um, we also know that some of them now are being impacted by human behavior, right? We change land over from forest to agriculture. We basically exclude the cicadas that were there. Um, we'll kill the nymphs usually by, by, you know, modifying the soil. We lay down a parking lot, you know, they're not digging their way up through that. So, um, you know, now we're seeing modern changes in distributions based on human activity, but the cicadas are versatile. Um, they're, they're, you know, they'll find ways to sort of keep going. Um, so, yeah. Well, I hope so, because, you know, they they mate all at the same time when they come up. I mean, roughly right over this period of a of a few weeks, about four weeks. Yeah, yeah. Four, four, four weeks and then about uh, another two weeks for the females to lay her eggs and and die. But most of the activity will be in a concentrated burst of about four weeks. Right. And then all the adults die. 
which yep. which means right that there is a a risk uh, a vulnerability that can a brood go extinct uh they can and actually two already have two there used to be 17 broods um two of them which were limited to very small areas uh basically uh they 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 went extinct one very very early on and then one is recently uh, as like the fifties. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just looking up here. So one brood went extinct in 1870 and, uh, one brood went extinct in 1954. So, and so those were very small populations only found in a very small area. There's also, you know, we know for instance, that, um, New York, Long Island, uh, used to have periodical cicadas from brood 10, but mostly because of human activity, um, they've been extirpated from the island. There's not very many, if any, now um, because of human activity. We've modified the landscape to the point that the population couldn't persist. Now, brood 10 isn't going anywhere. It's, okay. you know, it's the largest of the 17-year broods, and it's, you know, it's going to survive almost anything we throw at it. Good. You know, there are small pockets where you get small populations that just can't make it or we change the environment enough to where it's no longer hospitable for the nymphs to survive. Right. And the nymphs have a tough life anyway. That's another weird thing that people don't realize is uh, periodical cicada nymphs uh, experience a 98% mortality rate just over the first few years that they're in the ground. You know, it's tough because you're small. You got to find just the right kind of roots. There's predators, there's pathogens in the soil. So what we're actually seeing every, you know, like this year, the brood 10, this is only the 2% that survived from being laid as eggs in 2004. And it's right. still going to be like a trillion cicadas in some right. places. So imagine, right. I mean, it's, and that's a strategy, right. That, that many um, species and insects also can use um, because if mortality is really high, uh, one strategy is to lay an overabundance of eggs to to make sure that some portion survive. And with all the adults dying after, you know, I mean, why do they die after they reproduce? Well, because that's the only thing that they're doing. That's the only thing. So so the adults in periodic. So in annual cicadas, sometimes the female, the the, uh, the adults will feed. But in periodic cicadas, they don't feed as adults. So they might drink a little bit of water just to sort of, you know, keep from getting dehydrated, but they're not eating anything. So, you know, four to six weeks is about how long it takes for, you know, an animal to basically starve to death. Right. So they're on they're they're sort of in a race with time um, to just lay the eggs. And and that's it. As a matter of fact, you know, after the mating event, which will happen in the next um, three weeks, most of the males will already begin to die. So you'll see, you know, the, the, the population ratio will change from roughly 50-50 to 75-25 to almost 100% females at the end of the emergence event because the males would have already mated and, and they fulfilled sort of their, their biological imperative. Right. Um, they, with cicadas, they, they invest a huge amount in, in the nymphs, trying to get the nymphs in a place where the, where the, where they'll be able to survive. Uh, but they, 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 they don't put very much into the adults lasting very long or surviving. That's just not part of their survival strategy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they come out in such huge numbers that, you know, um, they overwhelm potential predators. Um, it's, it's predator satiation is, is the technical term when you get insects that emerge like this and they're not the only ones there are other things mayflies are well known to do it mm -hmm. um, there are other flies um, that that also do that um, where the the real investment is trying to get it you know overwhelm populations of predators so that the species survive and that's what they're doing they're coming out in such huge numbers that it doesn't matter if every squirrel possum skunk raccoon dog cat coyote or fox right. birds can eat as many as they want until the point that they're absolutely bursting at the seams. 
and there's still so many cicadas left to left to reproduce that they can reproduce relatively unmolested by predators because they'll <laughs> fill all of the bellies uh, almost immediately. Right. Well, uh, and that's a boon for all of those species. And we're going to talk about how it could could also be a boon for humans um, in in just a second. But I want to point out for everyone that, you know, lots of species use this strategy, even uh, mammals. Right. So a lot of the antelope and where you see synchronized births where everybody's just having their babies all at once is a, a way to kind of flood the predator system so that. Um, you, you know, there's going to be some individuals that survive, but of course we don't see 1 trillion antelopes, uh, coming out at the same time. That would be a bit problematic. Um, before we talk about bugs on the menu, um, I wanted to just make a, a, a point because you, uh, you, you know, this has been a, a point of confusion. So I'd love to hear from you about uh, this. So I, I just had Dr. Jeff Lockwood on the show and, and he wrote this book called Locust. Uh, and he was saying that a lot of people confuse cicadas with locusts, which are actually grasshoppers. Um, do you think it's because of the sheer number that show up and that, you know, is considered sometimes a a biblical plague that there's this confusion? Well, I think that's certainly part of it. I think, you know, especially before we really had uh, a lot of great sort of natural history and, and taxonomy to sort of help us sort this out. um, You know, there was sort of, well, they're, they're large, they're both large insects. Mm -hmm. They both make noise. Um, They can arrive in really large populations. And so, Uh, I can sort of see how people could make that intuitive leap. And even now that we know full well that cicadas are cicadas and locusts are grasshoppers, there are certain parts of the country where they are still using the common name locust for cicadas, even if they know that that's wrong. That's just what it's called, you know, regionally. And so it still persists. But they're they're very different. Locusts, you know, do in fact consume crops, um, they can bite. And so, you know, when they show up in large numbers, that's, that can be a, a real problem. Um, you know, and I think, I think, you know, the, because a lot of, of, uh, early, uh, settlers when they moved here, you know, a lot of, of sort of their perceptions were, were based in, you know, biblical references and, you know, the Bible isn't really that great at sort of describing diversity. Um, it's, it's very limited and it's very focused, right? In, in many of the stories, it's, they're trying, to, they're not doing it you know, to make a field guide, right? To the sure. insect or whatever. So, <laughs> so, you know, it would have been, it would have been very difficult, I think, for writers of different chapters of the Bible to try and separate a cicada from, from a grasshopper. Sure. Uh, in any in any kind of meaningful way, and that and that just sort of persists into modern times. Okay. So, but it it does still happen a lot. But I appreciate the opportunity to make it clear that these are very different things, and we don't we don't actually have locusts like the kind that you're talking about in the Bible. Those are mainly African mm-hmm. and Middle Eastern. They don't really occur here. We used to have a locust, the Rocky Mountain locust, uh, but it actually has gone extinct um, for a variety of reasons, and so. So we don't really have locusts in the same sort of uh, plague level um, that we used to have. So, yeah. Um, well, and I, I also want people to recognize that it's not the same because these are not harmful. They're not going to destroy crops or gardens or leave a scorched earth behind, you know, with what's ha- like right now is going on in um, Kenya. There's been a, a, a locust swarm that's been moving. I think it started in the Middle East and it's, you know, it's, it's, and, and it's hit Ethiopia and that's very different. And because they're big and because they're sort of, you know, interesting looking, I'm going to say interesting looking, but other people may think alien looking. Um, if they are confused about that, they might kill them. And, you know, just for the sake of killing them, you know, or be afraid uh, that they're going to destroy things. Uh, now, well, and in many cases, you know, people are, are, you know, already saying, you know, I've seen these popping up in my garden, you know, and, and that's really only because you put your garden somewhere, where there were trees 17 years ago, they, 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 they didn't invade your garden. You put right. your garden where they happen to be living 
And so it's really kind of important to sort of think of it from a cicada's long-term view. Sure. They don't know the difference, right? It, when it was, they, it, it might've been a full forest when they went in the ground and they're just, they're just feeding on whatever roots they happen to find. So, right. you know, if they're popping up in your garden, they're not going to bother your garden plants at all. That's not, they're not going to lay their eggs in that. Um, that's, that's just not part of their life cycle. It just so happens you put a garden where they, where, right. where they went into the ground. So, uh, yeah. um, and yeah, they're going to be gone relatively soon. And the, you know, the dead bodies of the adults are going to, you know, uh, decay and, and sort of return a lot of nitrogen and a lot of calcium and other important, uh, minerals that the trees will then take back up, right? The plants will take all that back up and yeah. it's a wonderful sort of cycle, right? They put um, so much into getting to the adult stage and then they mate and then they, they basically give it right back to the plants, everything that they took from in a relatively short period of time, only a, only a couple of weeks and their, their bodies will all be gone and, 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 uh, and will have disintegrated. So. Sure. And so they're going to feed your garden and in many places, you know, bugs, including cicadas feed people. Uh, so, so let's just talk about that real quick before I let you go. Um, so predators aren't the only ones that feast on them. And, and for people might think this is strange, but for people around the world in many places, eating bugs or other insects is quite a normal part of their diet. And Absolutely. So, so, so the, so the food and agriculture organization of the United Nations did a report back in 2013 that focused on the eating of insects globally. And um, they estimated that uh, over 2 billion people worldwide consume insects and other arthropods as a regular part of their normal diet, not as a novelty, which is how it has kind of, uh, been reduced to in in Western nations like the U.S., Canada, most of Europe, um, where you know we might take crickets and dip them in chocolate or put mealworms on a pizza, right, to try and get people to eat insects. They're eating them regularly as a yeah. part of a nutritional diet. And insects are really great. They're they're high protein, low fat, low carb, gluten free. Um, they don't have huge expenditures in terms of space so they don't have the same sort of environmental impacts that traditional livestock uh, can sometimes have and and the inputs in terms of the amount of food and water that you have to give insects uh, if you're you know running like a large commercial farming thing is much less sure. um, and you get you get much higher output in terms of protein production per animal um, when you when you when you move into um, sort of concentrated agriculture. And, you know, you, you can stack, you know, crickets in bins, you know, 12 feet high if you wanted to, and you couldn't take, you know, cows and stack them 12 feet high. So the, so the, so the footprint is really quite small, but as you say, um, uh, that same report that I just mentioned, um, puts it at 80% of nations in the world have regular, insect uh, and other terrestrial arthropod consumption as a, as a staple part of the diet, not right. as a novelty, not as a, you know, a dare, but as a sure. regular part of the diet. And they eat everything. Um, we're talking about tarantulas, scorpions, um, lots of different kinds of insects, especially um, larvae mm -hmm. uh, are consumed in lots of different places. Um, you know, they, they have, uh, you know, different cultures focus on different species, sure. um, but globally there's at least 1900 species that are regularly consumed as part of the normal human diet. Um, and it's only here in the U S where it's sort of this gross thing that, you know, why would I do that? You know, insects are gross and dirty, which is absolutely incorrect. Correct. You know, people have no problem eating shrimp and crab and lobster. And these are bottom feeding carrion feeders. Right. So, right. you know, <laughs> which would you rather have a nice herbivore like a cicada? Right. Or a shrimp just that that spent its entire life eating a dead fish. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> so well, right. It, what goes in must come out, you know, you know there seems to be like a selective uh, acceptance to eating some arthropods, but not others. Well, and a lot of that is also, you know, a lot of cultural um, and historical sort of communities were built around, you know, lobster, shrimp, uh, harvesting or crab. Um, and, and 
so, and, and I actually think it's more ecologically sound to eat insects rather than use pesticides all over and kill them all. Uh, but speaking of nutritious, I mean, could we say that a, a cicada is like eggs, an egg with legs? <laughs> um, no, actually, they are far less. They're far better for you than an egg. Um, lower cholesterol, lower uh, in in saturated fats that we know are bad for your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, they're actually much better for you than than an egg with legs. Um, <laughs> okay. You'll think about the leanest piece of meat, um, you know, a piece of salmon or something um, that, uh, you know, and now imagine that you've got a billion of them that you can just sort of grab and use for almost any dish. Um, right. Can you, know, you do it? At, oh, sorry. Can you do but, it after they die? Uh, can you eat them after they already no, die? No, no. I mean, and that, you know, you, would you eat roadkill? I mean, some I, people, maybe some places <laughs> might eat roadkill, but no, I mean, it's a dead animal. So, sure. you know, it's begun to decay. Okay. Uh, so you don't want to eat them when they're dead. If they're still alive, they're totally edible. All life stages of the periodical cicadas are edible. Um, okay. The eggs are edible. Um, the nymph is edible, the tenoral adult, that's the white, um, still soft adult right after it molts is edible, but you can still eat the full grown adults, um, harden. Now, most people, when they consume them, they take the wings and the legs off. Just, um, I don't know. It's, it feels weird for them. Uh, you, they're totally edible too. You can eat them. They're just, they tend to be a little too crunchy and a little sort of off putting to a Western palate to, to crunch down on, on a whole cicada, but you can, they okay. are 100 You want to sex them if you can, um, if you, you know, want to dabble with this, um, males don't actually have very much, um, meat by the end of their life cycle. Once they're an adult, um, males, most of their abdomen, for instance, is actually hollow space. And they use that to amplify the song, right? They only have to have basically their, their testes, uh, so they can mate with females. Um, they've got blood supply, um, but otherwise it's mostly hollow, right? So if you cook those, they're, they're mainly adding sort of crunch, right? They're adding a texture to whatever the dish is. Females, however, they have, you know, their abdomen is full of eggs. Uh, and so, you know, you get, you get uh, a, much, a much more pleasing and succulent experience with a female. And you can okay. tell them apart by flipping them over. Um, the ovipositor on the female is very conspicuous on the abdomen. It's a, it's a really dark, shiny uh, strip right down the middle of the abdomen towards the tip of the abdomen. And males don't have those. They, okay. And so when you flip them over side by side, it's very obvious when you have a male, he just has sort of a dome state shaped structure at the end, but the female's abdomen comes down to a sharp point, right? Cause okay. she's, he's going to yeah. use that to push into those leaves, into the, into the limbs. Uh, and so it's very easy to tell them apart. And w- once you get used to it, you can actually do it without flipping them over. Just walk up to a tree. You'll be able to tell oh, this is a male and this is a female. OK, um, oh, I'm going to I'm going to try that. Well, I don't know if I'll see anywhere I am at the moment, um, but it, what, I, I think it is important to point out because I was reading this and I want to make sure it's true that people with shellfish allergies should not eat cicadas. Um, is that is that correct? Well, it's partially correct. So it's specifically those with crustacean shellfish. So if you have an allergic reaction to uh, shrimp, to crabs, uh, anything like that, yes, you can. There are, there are a couple of proteins that are found in the muscle tissue um, that are the same as those that are found in crustacean shellfish. Um, and those have been shown to be, um, react reactive and cause an allergic reaction in sensitive people. Okay. Um, and, and, and the chitin itself, um, that they use for their exoskeleton is essentially the same. It's the same structural thing. So if you're eating the outside of the animal, like you do sometimes, um, with, with shrimp where you Mm -hmm. eat the whole thing. Um, you can have a reaction because the, the chitin is essentially the same. Okay. So we recommend, you know, if you if you have a known shellfish allergy, you know, there's not that many documented cases of someone who had a crustacean shellfish allergy, then ate a, ate a cicada uh, and, and had an anaphylactic reaction. There are a few, but not too many. Um, but we always sort of recommend people, you know, just make good choices. If you if you have that, 
is it really worth it to you to try to eat a cicada? Um, probably not. You'll, right. have to, you'll have to live vicariously through through others. Um, okay. But yeah. Uh, for everyone else, uh, bon appetit. Right. Well, and I'm going to uh, try to find a recipe. I don't know if you have a favorite one that, that you can share. Well, actually, um, uh, uh, unfortunately, since this is this is audio only, um, your 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 listeners won't get a chance to do it. But there's actually um, cookbooks specifically for cicadas. There's oh a number gosh. of things that are cicada specific, uh, and they that's all they include is recipes for how to prepare cicadas. And some of these are really fantastic. A lot of them are so, sometimes simple, you know. Um, cicada nymphs and, and tenoral adults are great, just sauteed in butter and you can use them in lots of different dishes, but butter makes everything good. I don't care what anybody says. All types of things. You can make (laughs) tacos. There's a, there's a cicada and saffron risotto in here. Um, you know, deep fried cicadas, you could roast them and drizzle a little bit of honey or something on them around here. Uh, you know, a lot of folks around here are going to are going to season them with Old Bay and use them sort of interchangeably with shrimp, because that's something yeah. we do here in the Mid-Atlantic. Right? Yeah, we you love- could do you could do a, a cicada paella. Um, you can. You right? absolutely can. So so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I put links to these uh, some of these cookbooks on the show notes for people to find um, and and maybe uh you know, explore and, uh, you, you know, yeah, there's literally dozens of cookbooks for insects in general, um, about a half dozen cookbooks that are just cicadas, but there's literally thousands and thousands of, of recipes. And this is not just, you know, the gross out here, eat this cricket that I, that I dry roasted, which sure. I personally enjoy, but some people don't, it's really a thoughtful sort of incorporative, you know, you're going to be dicing it up like you would, you know, small pieces of, of meat. Uh, you can make stews. Um, you can use them whole in things like a low country boil or a stew. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, it's really the the limit is your imagination, right? If you, if you kind of know how to season meat and you know how to use proper seasonings, you can do almost anything with these guys. Well, it'd be great to, to you know, uh, see people maybe shift to uh, not relying so heavily on meat and industrialized farming of uh, of livestock for for their food. But that's my the ecologist well, in me. Yeah, you know. yeah, let me yeah, we're, we're, chicken, beef and pork are not going anywhere. They're I know, you know they're going to be around. But the but the stark reality is, is our population uh, is projected to hit 9 billion humans by 2050. We can't convert enough land over to livestock production. So we have to start thinking now about how to supplement, you know, not replace, but supplement mm-hmm. with other high quality nutritional proteins because we simply can't bulldoze everything and make, you know, uh, huge livestock production facilities. We have right. other needs for that land, right? right. So, yeah, you know, and we need insects for a lot of. Yeah, oh, insects can be that supplement that we need to to help us deal with that, so that we don't have thirty years from now food shortages leading to you know even worsening conditions in terms of starvation and poverty, you know, which we already have. Yeah, they can be you know, many times worse by then. So insects are offering us sort of a way out, right? right. And with 10, qu- 10 quadrillion insects alive on earth at any one moment, they're the most plentiful protein supply there is. Well, right. And they perform a lot of other ecological functions while they're around. And so doing, so if, if we could encourage people to diversify and incorporate insects, then maybe we can also, you know, start to undertake practices that support the continued existence of all of these quadrillion, you know, (laughs) 10 quadrillion insects um, on the planet, because a lot of the practices that we undertake are actually affecting insects uh, uh, very negatively around the globe. So, Speaking of getting people involved, one last thing, and then I promise I will let you go. You've been so generous with your time and I can talk to you forever. So I may have to have you back. Uh, like I said, Anytime. To, it would to be talk. my pleasure. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I briefly mentioned the cicada safari map and, and citizen science and how people can get involved. Can you give us a little bit information so that people can join in if they want to? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so the cicada safari app is, um, it's, you can actually just Google for cicada safari app. Um, and you'll go to a website that not only shows you a live map of other citizen scientists, as well as professional scientists, they're using the app. Um, but it's a great way to sort of, uh, it's a gateway to sort of engaging about, uh, the natural world in a very non-obtrusive way, right? You don't have to actually catch the cicada. You just have to like take a picture, you know, count the number that you see in your backyard and you upload the information. Your phone already has sort of the GPS coordinates. And so you're feeding into sort of our global um, map of where the brood is, how fast it's, it's, it's emerging, right? So we, because of the app, we already know that you know, we've got a lot of adults already out in the southern portion of the brood because, you know, it's warmer. It got warmer faster. That's pretty normal. But it helps us fill in gaps. Right. We don't know necessarily that it doesn't exist in between the three you know, large pockets and the app helps us. So we need as many people as possible. Right. It's and, and the cool thing is, is you don't have to like you don't have to go hiking out in the middle of nowhere to provide data for this effort. You literally can just walk into your backyard. And if you see cicadas, you pull up the app, you, you upload, and you become part of this massive network of scientists and citizen scientists working together to fill in our knowledge gap on this emergence. And that is captured for all eternity, right? So, you know, the next generation of scientists that are working on periodical cicadas will use data that you uploaded with your phone, with your kids in the backyard for their research. Right. Yeah. And that's really important and really impactful. And I hope that it can serve as an example of other kinds of really great citizen science efforts to help us. Cause let's face it, you know, with, with, you know, a few thousand entomologists in North America, we can't be everywhere. Right. Yeah. So we need help, right. We can do some of it with specimens in the collection and we can do some of it on our own expeditions, but having everybody helping us out in this really easy, easy use uh, system will help us learn more about the natural world. And that's really what we're, what we're all about. Right. So yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a great way for people to get engaged. It's a lot of fun. A lot of people have been like really excited to be able to upload their numbers. So they're actually going in every day and, oh, now I have a hundred in my backyard. Oh, you know, now I have 300 in my backyard. Um, it, it gets really addictive watching the map as it starts to fill in, uh, and will for the next year. And this will be, this, this is the last of, uh, of the broods before we have a gap. We'll actually have a gap of two years, 2023 and uh, 2022 and 2023 will be gap years where we won't officially have a brood emerge. And that's because two, two of them went extinct. Right. So that's our gap. We had two disappear on us. And so but then in 2024, we'll have two broods out at the same time. So that's going to be a really exciting year. And that happens every once in a while when we get a 17 year brood and a 13 year brood and they happen to overlap because they're on slightly different cycles. So yeah. 2024 is going to be super exciting again, but um, this is, this is going to be our last sort of big brood for a couple of years. So I hope people will, will join in. We'll go get the app. It's free. It's available on uh, Apple and Android. So it's super accessible for almost anybody that has a modern phone, help us out, help them out. And, uh, and have a good time. Yeah. Thank you for everything you're doing, uh, Dr. Floyd Shockley, everyone. Um, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm happy to come back anytime. Wonderful. Okay. Before I say goodbye, I just want to circle back to the beginning because something has been on my mind lately. And it's the way that science attempts to own knowledge. When it comes to cicadas in North America, indigenous people not only integrated these insects into their mythology and cultural traditions, they also had a deep knowledge of their life history. The very way they are represented in their culture 
demonstrates a knowing of the cicada natural history with slight variation from culture to culture and within the storytelling. For example, in the Navajo culture, cicadas were sent out ahead to explore the new world, and they feature prominently in the Navajo story of creation, also referred to as the emergence. I think the periodic emergence of brood 10 and the two-year gap that we're having as a result of extinction of two broods is a reminder to us of the rhythms of nature, how they occur at timescales that we rarely think about. Our disconnection from nature is reflected in every decision that we make. And the warning is that we may not see brood 10 ever again in some places. As Dr. Shockley pointed out, many locations have lost their brood entirely. We've, we've bulldozed, paved, and built over their habitat. The thing is, the past and the future are connected by the present. So all the decisions that we make today can influence the future of Brood 10 and ourselves. What if we respect the ecological role these insects play, recognize the value in appreciating what they still symbolize, hope for resurrection and rebirth, so that we may begin to reestablish our connection with nature and make decisions that set us on a better path. That way, in 2038, we can hear the deafening sounds of trillions of them all over again. And like indigenous peoples of the past, eating them is also an option. Check out the show notes for links to the Cicada Sound Library, books and recipes, as well as how to connect with Dr. Floyd Shockley. You can find the notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. And please, if you're enjoying the show, subscribe and share it so others can find it and enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and tune in next week as we depart from our insect theme. And instead, I'm having a special episode that does pick up on the idea of disconnection and the need for change. I do that with my good friend, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, and we talk about some truths surrounding diversity, equity, inclusion, and leadership, and also about his upcoming book, Mind Heart for Diversity. It's going to be a truly heart-centered conversation, so don't miss it.